Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O Aaron is a longtime friend of our podcast, and of Gemma's in particular. They connected in the Keepers Facebook group after the release of that series on Netflix and have been in touch ever since. The abuse at the center of that docuseries has also sadly played out in Aaron's own life, and she's joining us today to share her story of trauma and also of hope. Her tormentors weren't priests, but family members. And the pain of those experiences led her down a path of even greater suffering and confusion that she is grateful to have emerged from today. I'm going to hand the interview over to Gemma and let her take it from here. I always say this, but this is a really special guest because she has a story to tell that's going to impact everybody that's listening. My friend, Erin Labor, is with us tonight. Aaron and I got to be friends by Facebook Messenger, which happens with some of you. So we've continued that friendship. So I'm going to introduce Aaron Labor, who is in Lakeland, Florida. Aaron, how are you doing? Hi, Gemma. I'm doing great. Thank you Good. so much for having me. We're going to kind of let your story unfold because there really is a chronological timeline. Erin, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how old you are, where you've lived, what your growing up was like? Yeah. I was born May 27th, 1978 in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, which was a country town outside of Pittsburgh, about an hour away. My parents, Joan and William, were both teenagers and they weren't ready to be parents. So they didn't actually stay together. I was raised by my mom. She did the best she could, but I was left with people because she had to work. Eventually, I was sexually abused by my uncle at a very young age. He was threatening with a knife if I told. So I kept it a secret for a long time. My history of sexual abuse is the reason that I chose to try alcohol and drugs. I almost died. <laughs> I just didn't give up. But I wanted to to share this story because there are so many people that are suffering from addiction, whether or not you're directly or indirectly affected. So when you were abused, how old were you when that started? And it was your mother's sister's husband's. So it was like your uncle. Yes, it was my uncle. I, I, I believe four 
I remember some things that he would do that were very uncomfortable and I didn't want to go there. But my mother being so young, I was left different places. And because I was afraid to say anything, I didn't understand why this was happening. But I understood that if I were to say anything, that I would be hurt. How long did that go on? Actually, on and off till I was about 13 or 14. I wish that I could say that was actually the only isolated incident. There was another incident too with a family member that I won't go into too much detail for sensitivity reasons, but I was also sexually abused by a cousin. So that was hard on me. I really didn't have anyone to look up to, but my older cousin, I'm an only child. So that made it even more difficult, I'm sure. Yeah, there just wasn't structure. I remember staying with my dad sometimes, and he was a very intelligent man as far as books and mathematics, but just had no social food. He was an alcoholic. I, I remember lots of parties, and I know that he was growing marijuana and always using some substance, but I always would try to get his attention in one way or another. He did spend some time with me. We went fishing a couple of times and then he would take me to the bar, which I totally counted that as family time. Were you still living in Pennsylvania at that time? Yes, I was. He lived in a town called Grapeville, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Very small town. Aaron, I know that you mentioned that your abuse happened between the ages of four and 13 or 14. I know for a lot of people, we have fear that either our children or children that we are around, that they're going through something similar. Looking back, can you think of any signs that people could have noticed? Or is there anything that other people could have done to make you feel more comfortable coming for help? That is an excellent question. I definitely didn't feel comfortable. since There wasn't really a whole lot of parental guidance on either side. I do believe that at a certain point I acted out as far as behaviors. I would dress like an Eskimo, even if it was hot out. So there was one thing in moodiness, angry outbursts. I really don't know if I had many conversations with adults where they would ask me things. Definitely communicating with your loved one, even if conversations uncomfortable, but definitely behavioral changes, sudden disobedience or doing things. I invited a whole bunch of boys to come to the house that I babysit at. I was doing things that I think were maybe looking back or a cry for help or at least something's not right. There were definitely, there was no lines of communication and don't blame anybody. I don't think that was intentional. I think that was just the time and the period that my mother was a kid having a kid. Erin, what about teachers? How did you do in school? And did any teachers ever show advocacy or care about maybe your emotional well-being? I must have been good at hiding it. I think I had to have been because I don't remember anything standing out. I, I think what it boils down to is my coping mechanism was a dissociative state, like a fantasy world. Obviously, that's what my psyche had to do to protect itself. I think that I was very good at acting like everything was okay or at least stuffing it and ignoring it. 
and not dealing with it and thinking about it. I remember playing with friends growing up and just feeling like my friends might have a better situation than I did. I could tell that, but I think I was very good at just hiding it. Do you think that's typical of people who are abused from a very young age, like four, you don't know what is normal and what isn't in terms of sexuality. And then when you're 13, you're becoming a teenager and then a woman. Do you think a lot of kids who experience that at a young age develop those mechanisms for being really good at hiding it? Absolutely. As I grew older and like my trials and tribulations, my drugs and alcohol problems started, I remember hearing somebody say one out of every three people has been affected by sexual abuse. So I did my own little study. It's at least as prominent as that, if not one in two, either directly or indirectly. Mm. When it's a trusted, caring family member, like your mother or your father, this stuff does happen. And people do not know. What I've seen, and I don't want to say everyone, but I've seen this in a couple of other scenarios too, where there were situations that didn't involve me, but yet it was sexual abuse where people didn't know how to handle it. You would think right away you're going to report it and protect your child. I have seen where people would rather ignore it, or maybe it was just something that they couldn't handle. Erin, when did you begin using? And was that a conscious decision to help you forget what was going on? Or how did that occur? When did you make that transition? I remember experimental things like being 13 and being at my girlfriend's house. We were just preteens looking for trouble. There was something called mini fins or some kind of energy caffeine tablets or something that we experimented with or drinking our parents' beer. I think what I was looking for was just the feeling of being accepted, not really thinking at all. It was just experimental things. And then at some point, as I got older into my teen years, this is my coping mechanism, the high school parties, that's where it started becoming more of a serious problem. And did that work for you? It worked as far as me not really dealing with anything. I kept on and kept on until it became a permanent solution. Honestly, looking back, it's sad to say, but I don't think that I participated in much of my life until later on. But I think the goal was to escape and elude. Did you finish high school? I did. I did. Did you go to college? I didn't finish college. I did start. I started taking classes. Then I gave up on that and started using more heavily. Aaron, what kind of drugs are we talking about that time when you were around 13 or 14 and when you started using them? What did those drugs go into? My preteen years, we're talking 13, 14. I don't even know that I tried marijuana until I was probably 17 or 16, but definitely alcohol, beer, wine coolers when I was 13 or 14. Nothing too serious. And then in my junior, senior year of high school, it was like everything of the smorgasbord. It was like, let's go ahead and just have a whole Woodstock experience. It was cocaine I tried. It was ecstasy, LSD, acid, and many different forms of acid. Opiate, pain pills, 
benzos, Xanax for anxiety and methamphetamines, and eventually heroin. What literally almost took me out was the heroin. So it all started with alcohol? It started with alcohol, and I would say the opiate addiction started with, I had endometriosis or something that would require a pain pill script from my gynecologist. And immediately, I took to the opiate. I remember feeling just like I could, like, happy, like euphoric. It was more than just help with the pain. It was like, Oh, I could do anything. There was confidence there. I remember it definitely grabbed my attention. And I think that was the catalyst into what eventually led to a deadly heroin addiction. Erin, you shared with me in the past that you've been married and you have a child. Were you working during this time that you were experimenting and becoming addicted to drugs? Can you give us an idea of what your life was like when you finished school and did you have a job? When did you get married? How did all that work out? Right after graduation, my best friend was going to USF in Tampa. And so I got a job, a really good job collecting on past due mortgages. And it was like a really good pay. So I remember being able to live off that and have fun. And at that point, my friends and I would go to clubs, dance clubs and raves or whatever they were called then. We would take ecstasy and I would smoke pot during the day and go to work. Like sometimes I remember going on my lunch break from work and going to the Hillsborough River and there was a park and like smoking weed. But I don't want to stay out of control. I was using drugs, but I definitely went to work and paid my bills on time and I don't it hadn't got to me then. You were functioning. You, yeah, were, fu- a functioning. you were a functioning right. addict. Right. Yeah. I was functioning. And so I thought when, I was having a great time. So when did you get married? That was sometime in 04, I believe. What happened was I was dating someone and we got pregnant. So it wasn't like a happy marriage. In fact, I was very sad. I remember crying. I just thought it was the right thing to do when I was trying to do the right thing. I just remember that my mother-in-law was on her honeymoon with us and we were all riding in a canoe down the river. I think it was Homosassa. And I just remember just really wanting to dive in the water. I did have a relationship with this person and it wasn't like love. In fact, I can't even remember the things that I liked about him that throughout my story, relationships and men were not, they weren't, I don't think that I respected them or cared about them, but maybe some of them were just a codependent type of thing. So I ended up mishearing and their relationship, it really didn't work out. I don't know, I had suspicions or maybe I was just looking for a reason just to walk completely away. But yeah, I was in no way, shape or form ready for a marriage nor did I have a clue what it would really take. And what it would take is a healthy person. (laughs) So you actually had a miscarriage and you separated from the man that was the dad. Is that correct? Yes. Ethan came later. Okay. (laughs) I did not marry Ethan's dad. And... To be honest, it was one of those relationships where we were dating and I just felt 
safe with him. We were just like friends that slept together and went out. And then I became pregnant. So this was years later. And by that time, I had recognized where drugs had become a problem, but I was able to take care of it with counseling and I was able to put myself in check. Because a lot of it was carrying over from when I was like in my early 20s and when it was time to get serious about life, I really wasn't able to step up to the plate. But I did have Ethan and I definitely had every intention of being the best mother that I could, which I think almost everybody does. Nobody really wants to be sure genetic mother. I want our listeners to know that when she and I became friends, I didn't know any of this. I knew Erin as this bright light in a very dark story. She and I became Facebook friends. And you just know when somebody clicks and Erin and I click, not because we had shared experiences because her history is not my history. Not at all. My family for being a 50s family was pretty functional. Nobody was addicted. Nobody was in jail. Nobody was beaten up on anybody. But there was something about Aaron that she and I had this connection. And the connection was that we both liked to sing. When Aaron and I began to communicate on Messenger, Aaron used to leave messages that were singing messages. <laughs> and I never knew that you could do that on Messenger. Aaron would say, good morning, Gemma. How is your day going? And I was like, well, what is going on? So I jumped right in there and I'd be like, uh, good day, sunshine. Good day, Aaron. So we have this crazy but fun and chill connection. And we're just sing back and forth, right? So Erin shared with me that she had this amazing job at a shed place. Now, you guys know what like sheds are, right? You buy a shed and you go to this huge parking lot somewhere and you look at the sheds and you go inside the sheds and Erin would be the person that would sell you the shed, all right? So she was like the she shed lady. So we got to know each other and we shared a lot of stories. And I still did not know. I knew that she had some issues with drugs in the past, but Erin always seemed like totally lucid. She had a job. She had a kid. And Erin, do you want to talk about that time for a little bit? Yeah. My dream was to be a nurse and I actually went to medical assisting school. My first attempt at getting sober was actually 18 months of voluntary treatment because of my choices. I did very well in medical assisting school and anatomy. I missed one out of 300 on my final. I didn't believe in myself, not one bit, but I wanted to be a nurse. But anyways, at the time that I did get this job, I had eight years sober and I was in my relapse. So this job, I loved it. I absolutely loved pulling sheds and metal buildings and carports. It was also a great forum for nobody to notice maybe right away that I was losing my crap. Gemma, it's funny when you say bright light and everything because that's who I want to be. That's who I'm going to show you that I am. But in all actuality, what I can't Joe, that 
I've lost my way. <laughs> and I don't know how to get that. And I'm scared. And I just know that because you were good at covering it up. Yeah. Nobody wants to be like, hey, I'm a smack addict. Because we come into each other's lives for a reason or a season. Gemma's personality was something I noticed right from the get of the keepers. I love the way she would just get into it, get busy and ask these questions and personality. And I was like, I am going to know this woman. But if I didn't have this part of me, if I didn't have this ugly secret because who would want to be friends with me? I definitely was not forthcoming and I was in huge denial because I know for me to have gone through all that work, 18 months of treatment, basically someone else retraining you how to live and teaching you about the disease and from both standpoints was so much. And then to go from that to where you're living a good life and you're a good role model for your child to, okay, what happened? My relapse started with, I promise you, it started with a behavior, something of self-will where maybe I stopped going to meetings. That's usually where it starts or stopped communicating with my support, which whether I like it or not, that's the only way. In the meantime, you had also friended some of the other people that were in the keepers, some of the survivors, Mm -hmm. and one of them was concerned about you. And she said to me, I don't know if you've seen this video that Erin posted on Facebook, but I don't think she's lucid. I think there's something wrong. And in the video, you were, I don't know what you were doing, but you were like shoving furniture around or doing something in the office at the shed lot. And you were singing and not too crazy, Lucy. I I thought maybe you had something to drink or you were high. Maybe you've been smoking marijuana. And I said, I'll check it out and see how she's doing. And you were fine with me. So I didn't really put a whole lot of concern into that video. But the next thing that happened was that you disappeared. Literally, friends, she disappeared. And we had this good relationship. She was talking about coming to visit. I had no idea that the addiction relapse had happened. And when Aaron disappeared, I got upset. And so I tried to find Aaron. I called her. I texted her, I messaged her, I emailed her, I could not find her. This might be a surprise to Shane, but if you all remember Kelly the Box Girl, we have a friend in Lakeland, Florida, which is where Erin lives, and her name is Stephanie the Phone Lady. So the only person I knew to contact, because I couldn't find Erin, and I couldn't find Erin's mom, I contacted Stephanie and what Stephanie did was, this is going to be harsh for y'all to hear, but she said, if she has a drug problem, she may have been arrested and she might be in prison. And so Stephanie found Aaron and gave me the information for the penitentiary there in Lakeland. And I... This is hard for me to even talk about. I found Erin because I saw her mugshot. And I'm going to hand it back over to Erin. I was dating a guy who is a girlfriend overdose and died. 
and I literally overdosed and was on life support twice. We were just horrible for each other. The sickness from heroin withdrawal, I surprised myself with the things that I did. You would just do anything to not feel that. And anything included crime. Pying jewelry that wasn't his. And it's hard for me to talk about, but my disease didn't afford me an honest living or keep a job. After leaving jail, Erin suffered an infection in her arm so severe that it was nearly amputated. The infection was caused by her heroin habit and her abuse of the pain pills she was prescribed for that wound up only making things worse. I really almost lost my arm. The thing is, with that type of drug use and the way of using, there is a lot of danger of septicemia. So I was going septic very quickly. And I had to be on constant IV antibiotics, two or three bags at a time, just constant. I've been so fortunate. But no matter what, I wasn't able to get myself out of the situation or to get better on my own. Being in jail for 10 months, it was a long time without using drugs, but there was no recovery. I wasn't working on my, myself. While I was using back and forth, even after the surgery, which I did lie about because I was very ashamed. And today, I'm just glad that I'm alive. I was staying with my parents in the country. I wasn't able to stick with a job, no, no transportation, no money. I remember not feeling okay. I was restless, irritable, and discontent. And they talk about that a lot in recovery. You're just unusual. Your soul's not at rest. Here's everything's just off court. It was so painful. I wanted to really die at that point because I knew that I couldn't stop. Once I start, I can't stop on my own. So I was ordered to supervise visitation and I had to meet my son at the Brandon, which is a city between Tampa and Orlando. First couple visits were really hard on me. I knew that he wasn't very happy about being there but I had no idea what was to come in the future for him being there as a result of my actions. I was deteriorating fast. My parents were angry and upset and hurt because they were not allowed contact with me. I, apparently, I overdosed several times in the CPR. But this one time, which is kind of the beginning of the end or the end that led to the beginning, the paramedics were called. And I was dead when the paramedics arrived. I was hallucinating for about 48 hours after coming out of the coma. I didn't recognize my mother. I thought she was just a nurse that was giving me tough love, but I had no idea that it was my own mother. And this is the first time that my mother has gotten a call from the hospital and, and told that her daughter's on life support, unfortunately, but this was the time that they did many brain scans and chest scans to see if I was going to come out of it. Because my mother was told that they were not sure that I was going to be able to come out of it this time. And that didn't register or resonate. Even when I started to come around, my first thinking was, I got to get out of here. I wanted to just stay numb. But I was not healthy. And I remember this one conversation between the doctor and I. The doctor had this very frightened look on his face. And I was like, what's the matter? Very ignorant. And... 
you look like you saw a nurse. And I think about that a lot today because when I asked him why he had that look in his face, he just simply said, I did not think I would ever be able to have a conversation with you. He said, we were pretty much deciding that you were not going to be able to make it off life support. So I was close to having the tube and the life support shut down. So what now? They give you a free complimentary taxi when you're at the hospital. And I took the taxi right back to where I overdosed at, which moronic, but totally normal for active addiction. My mother was in the process of taking me up after work. And she did find me, and she was upset. Of course, Erin's mother wasn't the only person in her life upset with her immediate return to the life that almost killed her. Her son was devastated. When Erin's mother discovered where she was, she called the authorities and had her taken back into custody on the grounds that she was now a danger to herself. Looking back, I found a little bit of a relief because I was exhausted. I was tired. I was sad. I was over. I had lost all hope of ever being with my son again. And I broke his heart. And basically, the next morning, I went to first appearance and I was ordered to detox. But I drove me to detox. I've been to the detox before. There is something different. This I'm going to jail too if I would have left, but I didn't fight it. You know, I was just the staff there. This program, I have to say, it is one of the best in Florida. And I got to tell you, they they have they've changed lives, brought families together, made good, responsible parents out of people that were trying to kill themselves. Each, each staff member had a huge impact because while I'm there, I'm scared to death. And you don't know how your life can be back together, but you just know that you're safe. And we're sick to death. They gave me medicine. The sickness is what I always try to run from, too. The physical sickness, withdrawing from heroin. It's just very serious. I was given medication. I was given therapy. They had groups and the special nurses that took care of me and these people that touched my life in a huge way. Once I came into myself or just got a little further away from that disaster, I realized, you know what? I'm still alive. There's got to be a reason. I'm not going to waste it. So from there, I had a court hearing when the judge asked me how I was doing. This was done over the phone. I didn't know this at the time, but my mother was at, there in the court with the judge. They would have released me, actually. They can release you to intensive outpatient as an option. I think God took over because when the judge said, Miss Lamore, what do you want to do? I, what came out of me was, Your Honor, I need to be court ordered to inpatient rehab. That was. What I knew in my heart needed to happen. I didn't feel like I consciously said that. So that's what happened. And when you're court ordered to rehab, if you do not successfully complete, you go to jail, you will sit for six months and then you'll go to another program. 
it time didn't matter to me anymore. It's so well designed that even the music they play is very positive and it's reassuring. Like I can do it. It's kind of cheesy, but if you think about it, your thoughts are very powerful. My thoughts are powerful. And if I'm always thinking, I can't do this, I'll never get better. I can't live without drugs. Or I'll never be okay. If you're always saying that, how are you going to get through? How are you ever going to change? So they are constantly redirecting you and you're thinking and teaching you. And they also incorporate meetings from outside that are ha- that happen at the detox. So you attend meetings with the people from inpatient, people from outside are allowed to come, and the people that are just in the detox. So everything is designed for success, and I really wish it was given more, more appreciation. Because this girl here who didn't even know herself, I had no idea anything about myself until the first time I went there. I couldn't tell you basic things about me. My likes or dislikes. But they taught me how to be a woman in recovery. So from there, I went through some changes. One of those changes was just learning to follow the rules. Even ones that seemed petty or hard to understand. In order to learn that the decisions we make have consequences. You can't share clothes. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't smoke. There are so many rules that there's a rule for every rule. Now, it took me a while to realize that I was breaking them. I was sharing clothes. I was sharing food. And that may seem like not a big deal. But if I'm not looking to change my behavior, if I'm not willing to change in every way, then if I'm doing the same thing, expecting different results, that's insanity. So I did go through a lot of learning experiences. You have no privileges, no phone privileges, no nothing. Till so I review it on a Monday for the week. So I was on that for six weeks. And then something inside me just started to out and, and it just grabbed recovery. I was reading positive materials. I was reading the literature of NANAA. I was attending. I was listening in the meetings. I was getting phone numbers of women so that when I couldn't use the phone, I started to make those phone calls. Those phone calls were very hard to make at first, but it's like you call and you have no idea what to talk about. The more that I did, the more at peace I started to feel hope. I started to feel. So when I stopped fighting against myself and started to do different things to try to change, I noticed that's when I started to begin to feel hopeful again. And this time I didn't really think it was going to happen. I didn't think I was ever going to come back from there. So yeah, I did stay there. Then my recommendations after that were the halfway house. Agape. Agape means unconditional love. This house, God bless it, was the second time being there. It is a facility, three different buildings, and they all have kitchen and bathroom, shower. The first one is the med office and the administration office. The second one is the little house, which you save up to you, and then the big house. And basically, you share living quarters. It's about 10 women. 
eventually the goal is to get a job or to community work or seek to further your education. But this is where they get you ready for the outside world. There are roles. There's chores in the morning. There's groups. There were so many groups that I do have a great understanding of the disease addiction. I'm grateful for that. But people are amazing. They're out of this world. Amazing. Erin, can you talk a little bit about what your life is right now? I especially want you to address why you're doing this podcast. Why bother? Unfortunately, when you're dealing with drug addiction, many people I was in jail with died or I got out. 15 friends of mine, they're dead. It means so much to have the love and support of Udema and the Keeper family, and I will always be a keeper. I realized that a lot of people may have a hard time understanding my story, and that's okay. It's not meant to be understood, but the one reason I'm doing this is because there is such a need for hope. There's no need for to know that there's a better way to live. But I don't know. But when you're in that that space, you don't don't know how to get out. And let's say, for instance, that I was with people that were less than decent, even though they were still eating drugs. My very dear friend, he was with people that didn't want to get in trouble. So they were, I wonder how my story, because Drug addiction. God, it's no one's dream. They're no one's childhood dream. I never even had any belief in myself growing up, and I'm grateful that I am alive. I am going to dedicate the rest of my life to trying to help someone. I will share this story despite the backlash I may get. And there are people that judge, let's be honest. Even though I don't like that about myself, I judge sometimes without knowing, without thinking. But the conversation has to be more comfortable for family members that have an addict. Either in your family, let's say it's your child, it's always very scary and touch you go and find out what your options are. An addict's destiny, an active addiction is one of the three. You are either in an institution, jail, or death. I got a citizen and got an apartment. All these doors began to open, and that is the biggest point I want to make. If anyone is listening, if you don't have a, any hope, or if you lost almost lost hope for someone that you love, never give up, never stop praying, and never stop hoping. Once you step into trying, once you give up the fight, against yourself and you put down your weapon they say surrender to win that's what I did it can get easy to be to fall into negativity thank you for those of you that were wanting to judge or initially judge but just the message is love the message is hope the message is some love Through Sister Kathy's series podcast, listeners hear a lot about abuse. And that is one thing that it's hard for people who have been through abuse to talk about publicly. 
And it's also hard for people to hear it. And that's one thing that I know I, and I'm sure Jim can speak to this as well. We hear a lot of people who are survivors of abuse talk about how it's so nice to hear people talking about it publicly because it makes it feel like what they're experiencing isn't just them. And with Erin specifically, she went through abuse as a child by her uncle. And drug problems is another area where it's hard for people to talk about. And a lot of people judge those problems. And for Erin, she can say that her drug problem is a result. It started because of her abuse. I don't think it's a coincidence that her abuse ended around the same time her drug problem began. Gemma, one thing that Erin mentioned while we were recording is that she died. She was brought back, but that's not always the case for people who have a drug problem. And our listeners mm -hmm. will know our episodes that we've done about Kelly the Box Lady. So I'm going to let you take this over, Gemma, and tell us about the update behind Kelly the Box Lady. Thanks, Shane. And thank you all for hanging in there with us. First of all, I want to say to you that Erin's here for a reason. I think you all know that. And she is open to your questions and comments. And we also, both Shane and I, have access to a lot of resources if you need help either that you've been abused or that you're having addiction issues, we can send you in the right direction. We are not therapists, doctors, or lawyers, but we can give you some ideas of where to go. Some of you remember about two years ago now that a woman named Kelly who lived in Florida in the same city where Erin lived, but she doesn't know Erin and Erin didn't know her. She scammed me. She told me she had a box of things that belonged to Sister Kathy that had been given to her by a woman she used to take care of. And I believed it. We had the whole world looking for Kelly. Kelly and her friends had done a lot of homework on the keepers. And if you stay tuned, I'm writing a book about this. So you'll get the whole story again. They were angry because another woman who was concerned about Kelly asked social services to do a welfare check. And when that happened, Kelly got angry and decided to use the woman's phone, stole her phone, and did their homework about the keepers and set it up as if this woman was Kelly. I know this is confusing, but if you help us, you'll get it. Anyway, Kelly had addiction problems. And at one point, one of the women who was scamming me with Kelly actually made an anonymous phone call to me. I wasn't able to see where the number came from and explained to me that they were just trying to get back at our friend Stephanie, who we called Stephanie the phone lady, because Stephanie is the one that sent somebody to do a welfare check. Well, a couple months ago, I touched base with Stephanie and asked her if she knew anything about what happened to Kelly. And she told me that Kelly had overdosed and was in a vegetative state in a hospital. And I was very sad, but not surprised. So I got in touch with a guy. I think he was Kelly's first husband. And when I asked him what was going on or if he knew anything, he said that she had passed away. So please take Aaron's heartfelt comments to heart. We all know somebody who's struggling with alcohol 
for drug addiction. And Aaron ended up as a heroin addict. And I will never leave her. She's my friend. We've never even met. And I just feel like she's my sister. And you don't leave. We don't leave family. So I'm very sad that Kelly put herself in that situation and was not able to get the help she needed and that it went downhill from there and that she died. But that's not unusual. And I just hope that everybody's listening and making some resolutions that if they have somebody in their life that's struggling with addiction or abuse, or if you are yourself, I know some of you who are listening are, please talk to somebody. There's help out there for you. And that's why we're here. We're here to take care of each other. Thanks, Shane.